So, Dr. McCarthy Kidd, thank you for agreeing to be a guest on Coco Pods podcast. This is a podcast of the Broad Center for Natural Deliveries Foundation, where we discuss all the issues about the health of the mother, including that of the prospective mother, and especially of minority women. It is our hope that talking about these issues contribute uh, to continued increased awareness and leads to steps of alleviation in areas where problems remain. By way of brief reintroduction, my name is Dr. Bola Sogade. For our new listeners, I'm a board certified obstetrician gynecologist. I'm a family physician and a minimally invasive gynecologic robotic surgeon in the Middle Georgia area. I founded the OB Gyne Birth Center for Natural Deliveries, the first of its kind in the state of Georgia, out of a dire community need. The Birth Center for Natural Deliveries Foundation was a natural consequence of my advocacy for better women's health. Cocoa Pods is available on all major podcast platforms, and the podcast airs new episodes every Thursday. Dr. Keith, thank you so much for coming to the Cocoa Pods podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm happy to be here. You know, you're just talking about minority women. What is one maternal morbidity or mortality risk item that you might have experienced in your profession? And, you know, uh, how can you relate this to minority women, number one? And then can you talk about some of the reproductive health disparities out there? Mm -hmm. So, you know, we are at a disproportionate amount of women, Black women who are obese or overweight in this country. Over two thirds of Black women are obese or overweight. And we know that that affects everything from your menstrual cycles, your ovulation, your risk of developing chronic diseases, and also your risk of developing pregnancy complications, and your risk of miscarriage is higher if you're overweight or obese when you get pregnant. And so that's definitely a risk factor that we have higher incidence of, and that can impact everything along the way for reproduction. We also have more hypertensive disorders and diabetes. If a woman starts a pregnancy or even fertility treatment with those conditions, we have to make sure that they are well managed because if she has uncontrolled blood pressure or blood sugars that are high, then she's at risk for miscarriage, preeclampsia, worsening blood pressure, worsening diabetes, which can have significant effects on the fetus and the pregnancy if they are not well controlled. So those are definitely maternal morbidities that we see um, even in women who are going through fertility treatment. So what, what I always emphasize with my patients is before we even start fertility treatment, we have to have a healthy baseline of a healthy weight, blood pressure that is under control, diabetes, blood sugars, and A1C that are well controlled before we even start because we know that those are major risk factors um, that will um, lead to a negative outcome for us. Wow. I'm going to pivot quickly back into two questions from a medical student and from a patient. So patient CW this morning was asking, what are the chances of conceiving after reproductive surgery? And I know we haven't fully discussed, you know, the diagnosis and treatments, but I wanted to throw in these questions and then we can wrap up with the summary of diagnosis and treatment of of Mm -hmm. these conditions. 
It, you know, that's a wide open question and really depends on the type of reproductive surgery that a woman has had. It might be that she's had her tubes tied. And if that's her only fertility factor, she has a very good chance of pregnancy with in vitro. If she's had a fallopian tube removed for an ectopic pregnancy, then she may be at increased risk for an ectopic on the other side if she still has a tube that's there. If she's had surgery on her uterus for fibroids, um, we recommend the surgery depending on the size and location of the fibroids. And the fibroids that are inside the uterus or in the cavity are the ones that we really have to make sure are not a limitation for an embryo to implant. And so if you have fibroids in the cavity, they're called submucosal. Removal of those fibroids can definitely increase a woman's chance for pregnancy once those are removed. It really just depends on the type of surgery. And also depending on the surgery, we usually recommend evaluation after that surgery. If it's a myomectomy, we would do saline ultrasound to look at the cavity and the uterus to see if there are any other fibroids that are starting to reform. We do HSG, which is a dye test or an x-ray to flush dye through the fallopian tubes to see if there's any scar tissue or any blockage or damage to the tubes. So we have to evaluate after the reproductive surgery to make sure that the uterus tubes and even the ovaries, if they've had a cyst or something like that removed, um, look healthy. Wow. And this is from um, Matt. He's a third year medical student. And he wants to know if the Moreno IUD can affect chances of fertility after five years of using it. It does not. And that's a great question. So like I mentioned, every cycle, there's a wave of eggs that start to form and then ultimately one ovulates and the rest of them regress. Mirena does not change the function of the ovary at all. You're still having follicles that form. You may ovulate, but the way an IUD functions is it mainly makes the uterus not hospitable for an embryo to implant makes the lining very thin, and it's, you're less likely to get pregnant that way. But regardless of the type of birth control that a woman is taking, whether it's an IUD, birth control, depo shot, tubal ligation, those waves of eggs are passing through the ovary every month. There's no birth control that changes that process. And so birth control does not limit or preserve the fertility. Sometimes women will ask, because I've been on birth control pills for so many years, does that mean I have more eggs? It doesn't. Those waves of eggs are passing, even if you're on pills. The birth control pills can suppress so that you're not ovulating an egg every month, but you still have several eggs that start and then regress every cycle. So having a Mirena for five years would not impact fertility once the IUD is removed. Wow. Wow. He also asked one question that should the woman consider freezing her eggs before starting an IUD? You know, egg freezing is definitely a viable option, becoming more popular, thankfully, for young women. So it's a great option if a woman is not ready to be pregnant but wants to capture her eggs at a healthier age. Like I mentioned, we're all kind of on a drift with our egg count and egg quality from puberty forward. And it's really the late 30s and over 40 where we start to see more significant changes. So if a woman is the ideal age to freeze eggs is going to be mid-30s or younger when the egg quality is healthier. Women can definitely freeze their eggs in the late 30s or sometimes over 40. But what we have to understand is that there may already be aging effects on the health and quality of those eggs. So in those age ranges, we recommend that women freeze more eggs. We usually recommend freezing around 20 or so eggs for women under 35. 
late 30s, over 40, we recommend freezing close to 30 eggs because of the quality and every egg that's frozen may not fall well, fertilize and become a healthy embryo in a baby. So depending on the woman's age and her fertility plan, she may choose to freeze her eggs before she gets pregnant later. If she has an IUD, she does not have to remove the IUD to freeze her eggs. So we have women who come in and they can maintain the IUD. You can't stay on birth control pills and other forms of um, contraception, but you can have an IUD in place and we can still do an egg freezing cycle, which is basically the same as doing the first half of an IVF or in vitro fertilization cycle. And for both of those treatments, we're taking advantage of the fact that there's a wave of eggs that form every cycle. If you don't take any medicines, your wave will start. You might ovulate one egg and that wave falls away until next month. If you freeze eggs or do in vitro, we would give hormones in the form of injection that a woman gives herself at home to stimulate that wave to keep growing. So many eggs will form at one time instead of the one that naturally develops. A woman takes those injections for about two weeks. When the eggs have formed, we put her under anesthesia, pass a needle through her vagina into her pelvis and ovary, and we extract the eggs from those follicles, and we can just freeze the eggs at that point. If a woman freezes her eggs, the only way to use those eggs later is to come back and do the second half of in vitro, which means thaw the eggs and fertilize them with sperm in the laboratory let them develop into embryos there and then transfer an embryo back to the body. We cannot thaw eggs and just put an egg back in the uterus or things like that. You have to work with the eggs in the lab. So if a woman freezes her eggs, she needs to be prepared to come back in the future and thaw those eggs and fertilize in the laboratory. But that's a great option um, with or without an IUD for women who may want to capture their healthy eggs now, but are not quite ready to be pregnant. And the beauty of freezing eggs is that your chance of pregnancy is based on the age when you froze your eggs, not the age when you put them back. So if you freeze your eggs at 35, you can literally come back at 45 or 50, and your chance of pregnancy with those eggs is based on 35, not based on the age when you put them back in the body. Wow, wow, wow. (laughs) You know, so what are the common causes of infertility? You know, there there are some myths out there as to things that cause infertility? And also, what can a woman that is subfertile do to enhance her fertility potential? So I want you to talk about the truths and the practicals and the superstitions out there. Mm -hmm. So fertility diagnosis come in general categories. And this is important for your listeners to understand that about 40% of infertility is related to a female factor, but another 40% is related to a male factor. So many couples, when there's a male partner, many couples will say it must just be a female issue. We're going to do full workup on her. And if we don't find anything, then we'll test the male. But if up to 40% of infertility is related to the male, you have to evaluate the male from the beginning. So if there's a male partner present, we always need to do a semen analysis for him. And it may be the only factor or it may be a male factor in addition to a female factor. So very important that if there's a male, we've got to do that. So, and I, I hate you, I want you to continue, but I have listeners in developing countries of the world. Mm-hmm. So I want to you to make it very clear that it's yes. not always the woman's fault. Right. So if you can just, you know, go over that and make that clear as you go Absolutely. on to answer these questions as to the things that cause fertility and the things that enhance fertility potential, facts and fiction. 
Absolutely. So that is one of the biggest myths that we have is that infertility is a female condition. And we know that that is just absolutely not true. There are female and male factors that may contribute to a couple's difficulty conceiving. And it's about equal. It's about 40% can be a female factor. Another 40% for couples can be related to a male factor. There may be factors on both sides, but because there is a significant chance of there being a male factor a male partner has to be evaluated. It is an incomplete evaluation. If you do a full workup for a woman and you have not tested her partner, we cannot effectively develop any kind of treatment plan or recommendations until we're sure that there's a, not a sperm problem with sperm factor there. So for men, there can be low sperm count. The sperm may be less active. The sperm may not be formed normally. Men may have had a vasectomy or they may have a blockage where they ejaculate and sperm are not being released. So there are many factors that have to be evaluated on the male side. On the female side, there can be issues of ovulation. And the most common reason for women to have irregular ovulation is from PCOS, which stands for polycystic ovary syndrome. And that's the most common reproductive hormone disorder that we see for reproductive age women. And it's a triad of symptoms, very classic. When you look in a textbook, a woman with PCO may be overweight. She has high testosterone, so acne, oily skin, facial hair, and she has very irregular ovulations just because of how the ovaries are functioning. But there are many different presentations of PCOS. So sometimes patients will doubt that they have PCO if they don't fit that prototype that you see in the textbook. But we also see many women who are very lean. They may have clear skin. They may have one sparse hair on their chin or their chest, but they can still have, you know, very polycystic ovaries, high follicle count, irregular ovulations, and still have the metabolic risk that go along with that of high testosterone and risk for insulin resistance or prediabetes. So PCOS is very common. Also, low egg reserve is another factor that we see for many women, especially for Black women, we are more likely to have delayed um, fertility before we see a fertility specialist. And I harp on age because age is a big one. And if we wait longer before we seek evaluation, we are usually older when we get to our fertility evaluation. And if we're older, our egg reserve may reflect our age, and that can be another fertility factor for us. Another more common fertility factor for Black women is tubal factor, like I mentioned, either related to tubal ligation or pelvic infections that have caused inflammation and blockage of the tube. So those are some that we see more commonly in Black women. As far as how to manage and improve your reproductive health, it's really managing those conditions. So healthy lifestyle, healthy diet, maintaining a healthy weight. If you have chronic conditions, making sure that those are well controlled, either naturally or with prescription medications before you attempt to get pregnant. If women know that they have fibroids, they should be having periodic assessment to make sure that their fibroids are stable, they're not increasing, they're not giving them symptoms, or potentially blocking an embryo from implanting. Safe sex practices are important to reduce your risk of exposure to pelvic infections, sexually transmitted diseases like gonorrhea and chlamydia, which can lead to PID, inflammation, and blockage of the fallopian tubes are important. As far as lifestyle, we know that smoking cigarettes, but also being exposed to secondhand smoke can affect male fertility and sperm function. It can also accelerate the aging of the ovaries. So we always recommend that men and women avoid smoking and secondhand smoke because that can have negative impact on their fertility. How about marijuana? Does it have any effect on um, 
We don't know. You know, we always still just recommend having less substances because you're you're not always sure of what's added to uh, marijuana if you're smoking and things like that. But there are not large studies the way that we have information and data on tobacco exposure for that. But in general, we still recommend, you know, moderate or limited alcohol use, limited marijuana or not smoking marijuana or cigarettes when you're trying to get pregnant. And in this era, how about COVID vaccination? Does that have an impact on your fertility? We don't have any information that the COVID vaccine is harmful to fertility. And so we advocate for that as fertility doctors. And we follow along with the CDC and ACOG, which is American Congress of OBGYN. Our society is the American Society of Reproductive Medicine. And we all are encouraging vaccination because what we do know is that if women are exposed to COVID and develop a COVID infection while they're pregnant, they're much more likely to get very ill, to be hospitalized, to be on a ventilator, or to even die from COVID. And so we understand patients' concerns that this is a newer vaccine. And so we're coming up on a year of the first vaccines being rolled out. There are millions, literally millions and millions of people in this country and worldwide who have been vaccinated and who have not had negative effect from that. And so we do recommend and advocate for vaccination to keep women safe if they're trying to get pregnant or if they're already pregnant. Now, how do you make a diagnosis of infertility? You know, I mean, you know, how long do you wait before you start getting worried that things might not be working? That's a perfect question. So I'm going to go back again to my age, my diagram that's in my mind. So we define infertility as a woman's inability to get pregnant for some specified period of time. And that specified period of time is really based on her age. So because our egg reserve is usually in a healthier range in our early 30s, we say that infertility is 12 straight months of unprotected intercourse without a pregnancy if you're under 35. But once a woman is over 35, we drop that down to six months. If a woman's over 40, we drop it down to three months. So depending on your age, that determines when you should see a fertility specialist. So a younger woman, we recommend seeing a fertility specialist after one year of trying. Over 35, after six months and over 40, we recommend seeing a fertility specialist after three months of trying. So, you know, so what are the, you know, treatment options, you know, and I know you alluded to some of the treatment options as we're talking, but just to recap, once a woman and her partner say that they're not able to get pregnant, what should they be thinking treatment wise? So we would first start with just a basic evaluation for the couple and for the woman, that means establishing her egg reserve. So we do hormone testing and there are two hormones in the blood that we test for. One is called AMH, which stands for anti-mullerian hormone, and the other is called FSH, which stands for follicle-stimulating hormone. AMH is the hormone that is produced by those waves of developing follicles in the ovary, and an AMH level can be drawn any day in the menstrual cycle, even if a woman's on birth control or has an IUD, just draw blood and check AMH level. If the egg reserve is healthy, a normal AMH is between one to four. Once the egg count starts to drift down, then the production of that AMH starts to go down. And once AMH level goes below one, then that's a reflection of decreased ovarian reserve. For many women with PCOS, because they have a higher follicle and egg count, their AMH may be higher than four. 
The other hormone is the FSH, follicle stimulating hormone. So that is your brain telling one of those follicles to develop and ovulate each cycle. And the FSH is specific to when it's drawn. You have to check that one around the third day of the cycle. So day one is the day that the menstrual cycle begins. And the appropriate time to check the FSH is around day three. At that point, early in the cycle, a normal FSH is less than 10. Over time, as we get older, our ovary becomes less responsive to that FSH signal. And so the FSH gets higher over time. And that indicates that it's requiring more stimulation from the brain for that follicle to be stimulated to grow and ovulate. Normal FSH is under 10. It starts to creep up over 10 as reserve slows down. And what we know is that when we're in menopause, where the ovaries are no longer active, our FSH is very high. It can be 40, 80, 100, where the brain does not understand the ovaries no longer functioning and it's constantly producing that hormone. So you see very high FSH in menopause. But just as the ovary is slowing down, the FSH starts to creep up 10, 12, 14, as it's just taking more stimulation from the brain to get the ovary to do its normal function. So we always start with egg reserve, but there's also an anatomic evaluation for women. So we do ultrasounds to look at the uterus, make sure it's normal shape and size, assessing for fibroids. And we look at the ovaries on the ultrasound to see if they look polycystic. We can count how many follicles are there. We're looking for cysts and things like that. The other part of the anatomic evaluation is the HSG, which I mentioned earlier. HSG stands for hysterosalpingogram. And sometimes patients call it a dye test. And this is where we put a skinny catheter through the cervix and flush dye through the uterus and tubes while we take pictures outside the abdomen with an x-ray machine. And that dye will flow through and outline the uterus. And if there's no blockage of the tubes, dye will flow into the tubes and then flow out the ends of the tubes and gets reabsorbed by the body. So that's important to show that the uterus is normal and that the tubes are open. And again, if there's a male partner present, we um, would do a semen analysis, which involves collecting a semen sample from a male two to four days after the last time he ejaculated. And we take that sample to our microscope and we measure the volume of the semen that's produced. We count up how many sperm are present per milliliter of semen. We calculate the percentage of the sperm that are actively moving around. And we also assess what's called the morphology, which is the shape and size of the sperm. And so that's the basic evaluation that we do for couples. And then we come back and say, based on this testing, what do we recommend? If the testing is normal, the tubes are open, sperm counts normal, ovaries are healthy, then we usually begin with stimulating a woman to ovulate with medicines like Clomid or another pill called Letrozole, and you take one or the other, and combining that with an insemination or IUI stands for intrauterine insemination. Insemination is where we monitor when a woman's close to ovulating, we take semen from her partner or from a sperm donor, load it in a catheter and we deposit the sperm into the uterus and gives the sperm a head start so that they can meet the ovulated eggs in the fallopian tube and fertilize that way. So that's usually the initial treatment if the testing is clear. If the initial testing shows that both of the fallopian tubes are blocked, or if the sperm count is very low, then that's when we talk to couples about in vitro or IVF, which is a bypass of the fertilization that happens in the body. And again, women can take shots to stimulate many eggs to form. We extract those eggs from the body. We get sperm from a partner or a donor, combine sperm and eggs in the laboratory and let them form into embryos in an incubator in the lab. And then we can selectively pick up a microscopic embryo 
pass it through the cervix and place it directly in the uterus without needing to pass through the tubes. Another advantage of in vitro is that we can test embryos in our laboratory before a woman gets pregnant. So if a woman is over 40 and she's higher risk for chromosomal abnormalities of the pregnancy, we can test the embryos for chromosomes. If we have a couple who carries a genetic trait like a sickle cell trait, then we can test the embryos for the disease that that couple carries to make sure that we're putting an unaffected or healthy embryo um, back in the uterus. So genetic testing of an embryo is another reason to go to IVF or in vitro. Now, some of the patients that have these conditions might face pregnancy losses. And even after artificial reproductive therapy, the, the pregnancies might be at higher risk for a stillbirth. Is that a, a, a fact? So the risk of stillbirth or the risk of miscarriage is really based on a lot on the woman's age or if there are other you know, uterine factors or genetic factors and things like that that are at play. Um, our age is a big one again. So based on the age of our eggs, the average risk of an early miscarriage in the first trimester for a young lady is about 15 to 20% per pregnancy. By the time we are 40 years old, and we get pregnant or an embryo forms from our eggs at 40, we're at a 50% risk of early miscarriage. By the time we are 45, we are at over 90% risk of early miscarriage just because that pregnancy formed from our eggs at that age. And so our age becomes really a significant factor in our risk for miscarriage. And that's even if you do fertility treatment. So even in vitro insemination, it is the age of the egg and how that embryo forms that really can relate to that risk of miscarriage. Some women may have higher risk for late pregnancy complications like preeclampsia, early delivery, gestational diabetes, and things like that, again, based on their demographic or based on their risk factors once they got pregnant. AMA, which stands for advanced maternal age, is an independent risk factor for miscarriage and pregnancy complications. And we consider a woman advanced age once she's over 35. So many women today are AMA you know, from the start of their pregnancy and higher risk for medical complications, even if they're healthy and have no medical factors before they get pregnant. Wow. Wow. Are there support groups that these women can reach out to? Absolutely. So there are unique fertility groups that are um, designed for women of color. There are national fertility organizations there is a national support group called Fertility for Colored Girls, which is the largest organization of fertility support for women of color in this country. It was founded by a reverend in Chicago and started there, but is now a national organization. There's a chapter in Atlanta and in several major cities throughout the country, and they have scholarships for fertility treatment, grant programs, education, seminars, and just outreach and support for women of color who are going through fertility treatment. Wow. There's another support group called the Broken Brown Egg, which was also um, founded by a Black woman who was going through fertility treatment and wanted to make sure that that support is available. Um, and then Resolve, R-E-S-O-L-V-E, is the national organization of fertility support for all couples in this country. Wow. Well, thank you. Sorry, can you spell that last one again? Resolve, R-E-S-O-L-V-E. Good, thank you. And so as we round off, you know, I, I, I have just two questions for you. You know, for the younger woman dealing with PCOS, which, like you said, is the most common endocrine problem in young people, should they consider donor egg? 
or how how can they you know secure their fertility so to speak so pco is super common and many women if they have pco have had that since puberty it's very common you know when menstrual cycles start at 12 or 13 they're regular initially and if they continue to be irregular then young ladies may get taken to the gynecologist and get put on birth control pills just for cycle control. And it's a common presentation for us to see women who say, I've been on birth control since I was a teenager. I got married. I was ready to get pregnant. I stopped my birth control pills and my cycle just went away. And what we understand is that the pills have just masked the PCO. They don't resolve it. They don't cure it, but they can give you a regular cycle, which is important to protect the uterus and keep you from developing hyperplasia or overgrowth of the uterine lining and things like that. So women with PCO are not necessarily at risk of having low egg reserve, but they are much more likely to have irregular ovulations and might need assistance when they're ready to get pregnant. On the flip side, if a woman with PCO does freeze her eggs, she may be at higher risk for hyperstimulation syndrome, which is where because her ovaries are very busy and she has a high follicle count, even with low doses of hormone stimulation, her ovaries may flourish and she can have many eggs to develop. I have seen young women who have had 40 and 70 eggs form at one time during their egg freezing cycle because of their high follicular activity. And so if young ladies with PCO do pursue fertility treatment, we always have to manage their risk of overstimulation with the type of protocols that we give. But usually they have healthy egg reserve based on their age and would be a candidate for egg freezing if they're not ready, in vitro if that's the route they go, or for many women, if her tubes are open, just taking a pill like Clomid or Letrozole to get one of those follicles to ovulate on time is what's really needed. But again, we know that there's a whole metabolic syndrome with PCO. And so managing that with healthy diet, less carbohydrates in the diet, losing weight if a woman's overweight is also very important for the management of the PCO. Well, we've been so fortunate talking to Dr. Desiree McCarthy-Keith in the Atlanta area with Shady Grove Fertility Center. Very knowledgeable. Thank you for sharing so much with us today. But I want you to give one final last word to the young teenager out there that is worried that, okay, I have PCOS or the young medical student, you know, how can I make sure that I can have a family or just to the woman in a low resource setting, you know, what can we do to at least help and make sure that we're fertile when we're ready, that we can have a baby? Yes. So the first thing I would say is to the young ladies is to protect your reproductive health, which means being safe in your sexual practices, making sure that you are less susceptible to pelvic infections and diseases that can affect your fertility down the line. So you have to be careful about that. If you're not having regular cycles, birth control pills are a good way to regulate your cycles and can also be used for birth control at the same time until you're ready to be pregnant. For college age women, who may not be ready to be pregnant but have fertility on your mind, you can always check in with your OBGYN. You should be having annual exams, and that's a perfect opportunity for you to just speak to your GYN about your fertility, ask any general questions that you have, even have you know an AMH level or just general fertility testing done at that time as kind of an assessment and a snapshot of where you are. That's a perfect age to freeze eggs or also to be an egg donor. So we also recruit young, healthy women 
especially women from different ethnic backgrounds, to donate their eggs to women and couples who are having trouble getting pregnant. So that's kind of the college age, I would say, thinking about your fertility, you're a candidate for being an egg donor, you're a candidate for freezing your eggs. And then for women, when you're ready to be pregnant, you really have to just focus on those time frames. If you've been trying for a year and haven't gotten pregnant, it's time to start with your gynecologist or go directly to a fertility specialist like me and get that basic evaluation. There's no way to know and assume what's going on without that evaluation. We also say that if you already know that you have a blocked tube, you've had an ectopic pregnancy, you have endometriosis, you have fibroids, you had trouble getting pregnant with a previous partner, you don't have to wait out the 12, six or three month timeline. If you already have a suspicion that there's a fertility factor going on, then you should go directly to a fertility specialist and get your evaluation. The workup and the initial testing is not extremely expensive. Insurance may cover the testing, insurance may cover the treatment. And if you do get to the bigger treatments, there are discount programs, scholarships, grants that are available to help with that. Wow. What is the oldest age woman that has been pregnant by, I don't know, in the world that you've heard of? So um, there's a woman, um, I believe she was in India, who was 65. And so what we know is that if the uterus is healthy, we can definitely transplant a healthy embryo created from a younger woman's egg into that uterus. We can give hormones to stimulate the uterus to be ready for that embryo to implant and a pregnancy can develop. The problem is that the chance of pregnancy is based on the age of where the source of the eggs, but the medical risk of being pregnant are based on the age of the mother. And so even though we can transfer embryos into 50 and 60 year old women and they can be pregnant, they are severely high risk of just heart disease, heart failure, diabetes, preeclampsia, and very poor pregnancy outcomes because of their age. So for my practice at uh, SGF or Shady Grove Fertility, our age cutoff is 50 for any fertility treatments. For women who are mid-40s or older, they are receiving embryos either from eggs or embryos that they stored at a younger age, or many of them are carrying an embryo from a donated egg, but they, again, can be pregnant. We can give hormones to stimulate the uterus to be receptive for the embryo to implant, but we do stop at 50, again, because the medical risk of pregnancy become very severe. And I have a responsibility to you, Dr. Sagadi, to not help everyone get pregnant just because we can. And then we turn them back over to their OBGYN and they have very high risk and complicated pregnancy. So we have a responsibility to the community to be careful with that. Dr. Desiree McCarthy, thank you so much for coming on Cocoa Pods podcast. I mean, this has been so informative. We are very grateful to you. We're going to have you back for sure because the questions are pouring in. People want to know, and you have answered them like a true professor that you are, you know. So <laughs> thank you so much for just the knowledge and bringing it down to even a layman's uh, way of explaining things to us. Thank you for your time today. Thank you so much. This was fantastic. And as you can see, I'm very passionate about what we do. And I always welcome the opportunity to share this basic information and dispel so many of the myths that especially impact us and keep us from receiving the fertility care that we need. So thank you very much for the opportunity to be here and call me and I'll definitely come back again. Thank you, Dr. Desiree. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you. Bye-bye.